I enjoyed that time of the singspiration and uh, singing those hymns together. I was humming throughout the, uh, the break time, <laughs> carrying some of those tunes with me. Um, and thank you again for Salem Bible Church and for uh, Pastor Lelaney and the uh, invitation to come. I was going to mention uh, to, to George that uh, in my advanced ethics class that I have a handout he has about the Sermon on the Mount and its application today, in which he talks about, as he kind of implied here during his last session about growing up in church and hearing a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, but not hearing a clear presentation of the gospel, and actually use that as a handout in class. And so thank you for your work and your written work and how that um, has taken over to Iowa digitally across the web. So thank you for that. Um, you will recall that we are talking in these sessions about our hope, and we've talked about a living hope, the resurrection of Christ, a compelling hope, the meaning of life. And this third section, a session, we'll talk about scriptural hope, uh, the recognition of the canon. So just kind of uh, as a truth and advertisement, I suppose you could say, a warning sounds strong. It sounds negative. It's not meant to be that. But uh, this is a rather historically oriented session because we're talking about a historical topic uh, the recognition of the canon will be concentrating especially upon the New Testament canon. I was talking to a, a person who ministers on a uh, state university campus nearby where I live and asking him about some of those common questions that he gets among the young people, the students there at the university. And if you remember back in the 1970s or so, there was a short little book talking about uh, questions that people asked that was kind of a little primer on Christian apologetics. And he was saying the two most common questions he gets today are not listed at all in that 1970s book, which, to be fair, is somewhat dated, of course. It's about half a century old. But the two most common questions he gets today concern Christian sexual ethics and then the question of how do you know that the right books are in the Bible? That is, how do you know uh, that what we have are the, the contents that are meant to be there in the Bible because young people will hear about other books perhaps that we don't talk a lot about, perhaps the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocalypse of Peter or the Gospel of Peter and other books that we know and have copies of uh, from the time period of early um, Christian era. And so the questions that we have concern those. I was even working with my youth group in a Holy Care Center ministry, and there was someone there probably in his 70s, and he had just been watching a History Channel special that morning about the Gospel of Thomas, and he was asking some of the teens who were greeting him there about that question, like, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in your Bible? And so these are questions that are raised inside of our culture, and then the next section, session we'll come back and talk about a realistic hope uh, the problem of evil. So this session uh, concerns the question of the New Testament canon. In the last couple of decades, there's been quite a bit of work uh, done by those who are taking a specific view or views of history with a language of lost. So you have lost scriptures by a scholar named Bart Ehrman, who is uh, famous in kind of critical study of scripture-type circles, lost scriptures and divergent doctrine, the lost Bible, forgotten scriptures revealed, lost Christianities, Christian scriptures and the battles over authentication, the lost Bible, forgotten scriptures revealed, uh, the encyclopedia of lost and rejected scriptures, the lost Bible, forgotten scriptures revealed, lost Christianities, the battle for scripture and the faith that we never knew, etc., so some of this concerns a bigger kind of worldview topics as well as 
the, the evidences, the facts that are there that we're all working with. So that, for example, there is a certain hermeneutics of suspicion, if we could give her that word, that is often at work in modern historiography with the view that the victors write the histories and that they will have very strong agendas. And so the, the voices of those who were suppressed in the victors writing the history, that we don't get to hear them very much. And so to try to bring those, to bubble them forth to the surface, and in this context, what that would mean is that those groups that were deemed to be heretical um, lost the battle, as it were, in early Christian movements. And so then um, we didn't get to hear from them, but with some recent finds, such as a place at Nag Hammadi in the 1950s, uh, probably the most, second most important discovery for New Testament studies after the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were various of these texts that were found in Greek and in some take, uh, cases Coptic language. And so what do we do with all this, with these books and uh, these epistles and these apocalypses and things like that? If on your own time you want to go to earlychristianwritings.com, you can kind of see a listing with links to all kinds of different documents like this that have been found to varying degrees, sometimes just snippets, sometimes entire portions, and realize there's a very specific kind of worldview behind that um, specific website. You can tell that by some of the datings that they have of New Testament documents, dating them very late, etc. But it is an interesting place to kind of go and to see what people are talking about in these types of discussions. So some key terms here, first of all, are the term Bible itself. comes from a word that means book. And so a biblion is a book, biblia, a plural being books. So the Bible, in one sense, is a library of books, plural. We tend to think of it as a single book because we have it bound in nice leather copies uh, with uh, pagination that we can flip, etc. in our, our current type of context. But that's what that word means. The word scripture means writing. So scripture comes actually from the Latin language, scriptura, which then is a translation of the Greek um, usually the word graphe, although grammata in some other cases, but that simply means writing. But the connotation of the word in this context is usually holy or sacred writing, not simply um, everyday writing, as it were. And of course, the phrase word of God is a phrase that's often used of our scriptures, of the Bible. It's not only used of the scripture. You can see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for example, that Paul is talking about the kerygma, the proclamation that he preached to the Thessalonians. And and he says, when you heard it, that you received it as it truly is, not simply the word of men, but the word of God. Now, at that point, he's not talking about a scripture text. He's not talking about a written document. He's actually talking about the message, what we've been calling the kerygma, the basic proclamation that would involve uh, the gospel, and then a framework around the gospel that allows the gospel to make sense. By that, I mean, for example, last session, we heard about how Paul preaching and teaching in Acts 17 at Athens. It's interesting when he's at a pagan context such as Athens, how he backs up and he talks about there is one God, monotheism, and he's the creator God that you're responsible to him. And he uses the bridge of the altar to the unknown God that he's seen in town as he's coming in. And so he has that kind of charismatic framework around the gospel itself to help the gospel make sense. I mean, it's the most basic form. The gospel isn't good news, for example, without the bad news of us being sinners, for example, and being accountable to God. 
And in Acts, in the Jewish context, you can see this in Acts 2, Acts 10, uh, Peter and Paul would just jump into facets of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. But in pagan context, they'll take a step backward to give all of that context because those pagans don't yet believe in the one God who is the creator God of the universe. And so sometimes the phrase word of God is used of that message. The word testament is another Latin word. Uh, We think of it perhaps with a different connotation than it first meant. We think of last will and testament, like the very last thing that someone says or last document that they leave. But originally in this time period is actually a parallel in the Latin of the Greek word uh, for the idea of covenant. And then the word canon comes from a Semitic languages and it means a measuring rod and therefore a standard. And so we use it kind of two different ways today in these studies because we use it of books that were recognized as uh, meeting a standard, as it were. So depending on how people discuss these tests or criteria of canonicity, and by that I mean simply being recognized, that it's not making them scripture, not making them a canon, but recognizing them as such. But also the scripture itself, of course, is our rule of faith. It is the standard uh, but by which we measure doctrine today. So those are just some basic terms. I just threw up a picture of a canon there, but do realize that word canon has two ends in the middle, C-A-N-N-O-N, that's the heavy artillery. C-A-N-O-N is this idea of um, a measuring rod, but then the accepted collection of Scripture. Here is a, our two charts here comparing uh, the Old Testament canon issue. There is sometimes some confusion about this issue that uh, today the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, and Protestant churches all share the same books in the New Testament. We do not differ from each other when it comes to the New Testament. Where we differ from each other is in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church have what we would call the Apocrypha. These would be extra books that are not found in our scripture. They would call them Deuterocanon. And the Protestant books actually match up exactly with the Jewish Old Testament uh, books. Of course, the Jews would not call it the Old Testament since they don't have a New Testament. They would simply call it the Bible, a scripture to them. But on the left-hand side in the gray, black, and white there, you can see how that maps itself out. The very far left-hand column is the Jewish Bible, and the second column there is the Protestant Bible. And the difference might be that we have the same content, but we have different number of books. And you can say, how would that be the case if we have the same content, but different number of books And so what happens is in the Jewish canon, they have various combinations, and so they take books that we would separate, they put them together. So 1st and 2nd Kings would be the book of Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel would be the book of Samuel, and then the biggest one would be the minor prophets, which they would simply call the Twelve. And then we break out by Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. But they would simply call those uh, the 12, and therefore it's one book. And by such combinations, they end up with 24 books um, in what we would call the Old Testament. Josephus, who's living around the year 90-ish, a couple decades after Christ, over a half a year, half, uh, half a century rather, after uh, Christ, he talks about 22 books in the Old Testament rather than 24. And so how do you get down to 22? Well, you do two more combinations. You combine, in this case, uh, Ruth with Judges, and you combine Lamentations with Jeremiah. And now you've moved from 24 down to 22 books. And you can say, well, why do they want 22 books? It's a really handy reason. It's because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. 
And so if you combine it down to 22 books, you have one letter of the Hebrew alphabet for every letter, or for every book of uh, the Old Testament. So the comparison then on the right-hand side in the different colors with the teal and the burgundy and with the blue would show even by length of parallel columns there um, how the Roman Catholic canon and Orthodox canons are longer than the Protestant canon and the Hebrew Bible, which are the same in content. Very briefly, there is one account in the second century of a pastor uh, from up in modern-day central, central western Turkey, uh, Melito Sardis. And there was some discussion in his area about what book should we accept of what we would now call the Old Testament. And he said, I'm going to actually solve this riddle by just going directly down to Palestine, down to Israel, and talking to them. And so Eusebius, a church historian, talks about this episode. Melito goes down there, and he gets the list that would be uh, like our list, like the Protestant list, and like the Jewish list, because he goes down to the Jewish headquarters, as it were, uh, down to Israel, and he gets that list uh, from them. Well, that moves us, uh, after that very brief introduction to the Old Testament canon issue, to the New Testament books. And thinking through the, the bodies of books that we have there, of course, we have the Gospels. And what's the word gospel mean? Good news. Now, we've talked about gospels. I just myself said gospels. This actually, that language is not a very exact language in some ways, frankly. If you were to talk about gospels, as we do today, in the second century, that would be almost like anathema. Because there's only one gospel, and Paul is very clear about that. If anyone preaches another gospel, let it be anathema. There is only one. Strictly speaking, the titles in the Greek are the gospel according to Mark, katamarkon, euangelion katamarkon, the gospel according to Matthew, euangelion katamatheon. It's the one gospel told four different ways, but there's only one gospel. Through transition of language over time, we talk loosely about having four gospels with a plural noun, but strictly speaking, there's only one good news. Uh, which is the account of Jesus Christ, his person, and his work for us. Of course, the book of Acts is a great bridge. It's a historical account of the early church moving from the Gospels into the epistles, written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke, of course. And to be clear here, too, it's a selective history. It doesn't tell us everything all the apostles did. It doesn't talk about Thaddeus, and it doesn't talk about Bartholomew and James the Lester, etc. It really concentrates upon two apostles, particularly Peter and Paul, because by doing so, it shows how the missionary endeavors of Peter to the circumcised was paralleled by Paul to the uncircumcised, and therefore the Gospels for Jew and for Gentile. And then we come to the epistles, and epistles are not female apostles. Uh, the epistles, that's simply a word that means letters. So these were letters that were sent by authors such as Paul, so you have the Pauline epistles, and then you have other non-Pauline epistles such as James and Jude, etc. And then the book of Revelation, uh, which in the book of Revelation chapter 1, it talks about it being an apocalypsis. An apocalypse, so a revealing of hidden things, and it talks about being a book of prophecy in chapter 1, verse 4 as well. And uh, just kind of go back to the Acts and Gospel issue. It shouldn't surprise you, by the way, that Acts is selective in its history. It doesn't tell you everything all the apostles did, because the same thing is true of the Gospels. They don't tell us everything Jesus did. In fact, the, the Gospel of John directly says that. It says, if it were to tell us everything that Jesus said and did, the whole world could not contain it. And so you have two uses of the word history in that case. You have the sense of history of what really happened, and then you have the use of the word history about a retelling of what happened. 
And retelling of what happened could be completely accurate, completely factual, but not be the entirety of what happened. Because in one sense, every written history is selective. Um, if you were to write a history of the United States, and it would be something you could buy at a bookstore and put in your car and take home, it has to, by nature, be selective. It can't tell you everything that's ever happened in the history of the United States, every event. Well, in the early church, they began to have historical collections. And uh, most scholars think the two earliest collections would have been the Pauline epistles, so gathering Paul's epistles into one location, and then the fourfold gospel. That is gathering together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the second century, we have this amazing shift in information studies. We're moving away from a scroll to what's called a codex. Now, perhaps you don't use the word codex a lot, but the word codex simply means a, a book format. So, for example, strictly speaking, this is a codex. It's bound on one end, and then I can flip uh, the leaves of this because it makes it really rapid in transferring from one location to another. In fact, some um, non-biblical scholars believe that we owe the existence of the codex to early Christians of the second century. They were some of the very first uh, scribal uh, workers who were beginning to think in terms of a book-like format rather than a scroll. If you can imagine... Uh, I was talking in the break after the first session. Someone was commenting on my rapid fire moving from scripture text to scripture text. If you can imagine doing that with a scroll. So yeah, one location inside the scroll, like you're in Matthew chapter 10. Let's turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 7. And you'd be going and going and going and finally getting over to Luke. So when you begin to bind the fourfold gospel into one location, into a codex, that's wonderful. But codex, codices in the second century were rather hefty. They don't have like India-style paper, the thin paper we'd have today. And so they couldn't contain the entire New Testament in one book. We also have questions about literacy in the early church. Um, in general, historians, there'll be, there's large debates about this, but historians would, would argue that in the Roman Empire, probably 85% of people were illiterate. They could not read fully on their own. They weren't readers and writers. Estimates would say that in a Jewish context, there was higher literacy rates than overall Roman Empire because they were people of the book, and so they want to learn how to read that. But most early Christians don't have personal copies of the Bible. They don't have a copy at home, A, because many of them can't read, B, because it's very, very expensive to own a personal copy of Scripture. It would represent months and months of scribal work done by hand. We take for granted uh, the blessing of mass production and printing that we have today. And so many, uh, the vast majority probably of early Christians don't have personal copies of the Scripture. But they're beginning to put these together in historical collections. Uh, some have claimed that the Council of Nicaea is the one that gives us the Bible. In fact, it's kind of dated now. Um, probably about 20 years ago, there was this famous novel, Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember that kind of episode that happened about two decades ago? And in that book, Dan Brown claims that the Council of Nicaea is the one who decided the scripture canon, that the Council of Nicaea had an argument about what was supposed to be in the Bible and the council, under great pressure and duress from the emperor Constantine, uh, made a vote. And then, like that whole idea, the victors write the histories. They kind of wiped out everyone else who didn't believe in their canon list. And through the power of imperial Rome, because Constantine was an emperor, forced this New Testament canon upon the rest of the world. Well, it's interesting that... Um, 
even like non-Christian historians would tend not to agree with that kind of a statement. It's a very popular idea for a while, and people were really buying into that. There was a movie based upon the book and all that. And, of course, the book was a fictional book, but in the introduction preface, he claims it's based upon research and scholarship and things like that, although it was a fictional narrative. To give you a sense of that, Bart Ehrman is by no means a conservative uh, Christian scholar. He uh, went to Bible college and throughout his training ended up becoming an agnostic um, in his later training and then life. But he would say, among other things, just to dispel one myth that so many people buy into, the Council of Nicaea, which was called by the Emperor Constantine in the year 325, did not decidedly did not decide the council, did not decide which books should belong to the New Testament. The issue of the canon of scripture was not discussed at the council. So it's not simply Christian scholars who would say that's not the way it happened. Uh, there would be scholars like this who would admit that as well. I think the redundancy of phrasing is not Ehrman's. I think that was my own typo there again. But it's just a reminder that this did not happen at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was primarily called to discuss the issue of Arianism, which was a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. And then it discussed some other uh, issues as well, but not really the canon issue. So the Synod of Hippo would be later in that century, the 4th century, the year 393, and it gives a list of the Gospels, four books, Acts of the Apostles, one book, uh, Epistles of Paul, 14, including Hebrews then in that list, Epistle of Peter, 2, Epistles of John the Apostle, 3, Epistles of James the Apostle, 1, Jude the Apostle, Revelation of John, 1. And so this is an early council that has a list that would be like our New Testament list. Um, just a few years later, nearby, Hippo is a small town in North Africa. Carthage is a large city in North Africa. It gives us a similar canonical list. It talks about the 27 books of the New Testament, four Gospels, Acts, 13 epistles of Paul, one epistle of the same to Hebrews, two epistles of Peter, three of John, one of James, one of Jude, and one of the Apocalypse of John. So these are the earliest councils that talk about the issue and give us a list that would be like our New Testament list. To, to back up for a moment, what we have to remember is that like when Paul writes, let's say, uh, the book of Philippians. So he's writing in prison. He writes and sends off a letter to Philippi. So the first stage is that you write the letter, Philippi gets the letter, but it's not like the next day bound inside a book called the Bible or called the New Testament the next day. What has to have happen is you have to have the accrual, the collecting of other documents and putting them together into a book. And this is why you don't have like a bound New Testament in uh, the year 100 or in the year 110, etc. It's going to take time for dissemination and then for collection and then for copying and then for copying the dissemination of the copies. Uh, spreading those out. And then to add one more step, we have translation, which would be putting into the English language that we would have today. So at first it sounds, well, that's really late. The first council list that's like our New Testament is 393, and that's just a small town in North Africa. It's not until 397, four years later, that you have a large city that has a list just like ours. Well, we can back up from there. These aren't like councils. These are individuals. So Athanasius is a uh, church leader in Alexandria in Egypt. And Alexandria was tasked with every year sending out a letter telling people what Sunday Easter was to be celebrated on. So if you notice, um, unlike in our calendar, unlike Christmas, it's always every year the same, December 25th, every year. And it could be a different day of the week, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday. 
that Easter is always a resurrection Sunday is always on a Sunday, obviously. It's resurrection Sunday, but it rotates calendrically between March and April, for example, because it's tied to the lunar calendar and it goes back to Jewish uh, traditions um, about the Passover and so on. Well, in 367, he sends out a letter about what day um, Easter is to be celebrated on that year, the year 367. And in passing, he says, by the way, there's another question people have been talking about. What are the proper books of the Bible? And he gives a listing. It's interesting. His Old Testament list is just like our Old Testament with one addition. He talks about Baruch, so Jeremiah and Baruch. But some actually think that's our Jeremiah, not with a second book called Baruch, because remember how Jeremiah happened. Jeremiah writes it. It gets destroyed and burned. Then Baruch helps write the second edition of it. But in either case, it does not include like First and Second Maccabees and Tobit and Susanna and Bell and the Dragon and other books that are in uh, the Apocrypha. But then in the New Testament, it's just like our New Testament. It has those 27 books. And so here is a long listing of his festal letter of AD 367. I won't take time to read that in its entirety, but it is a list of the New Testament that's just like ours. So many would say this is the first incontrovertible, uncontested list that's just like our New Testament list. We backed up from the councils now another 30 or so years to 367. If you go back a little bit earlier, you come to Origen, uh, who suffered uh, some physical ailments from persecution in the 250s, the Decian persecution. He has various issues, various problems, of course, in his theology, including his very heavy use of the allegorical method. Uh, rather than uh, the natural interpretation of scripture. But in one of his homilies, a homily on Joshua 7.1, he talks about comparing Joshua the son of Nun, which is the word Joshua is related to the word actually Jesus. Jehoshua and Jesus are related. You see this in Hebrews chapter 4. If Joshua had given us rest, meaning the Old Testament Joshua, we wouldn't need Jesus to give us the true rest in Hebrews chapter 4. Well, he talks about how he sends priests and apostles bearing trumpets hammered thin, the magnificent and heavily instruction of proclamation. Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpets. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles, also James and Jude. In addition, John also sounds a trumpet through his epistles. And some Latin manuscripts have, and Revelation, there I put that in brackets and italics to show some manuscripts have it, some don't. And Luke, as he describes the Acts of the Apostles, and now that last one comes, the one who I said, I think God displays us apostles last, and in 14 of his epistles, that's Pauline epistles, thundering with trumpets. Now, there is debate about this. That's why I said Athanasius is the first uncontested, incontrovertible list. This one is contested, partly because we only have it in Latin, but Origen wrote in Greek. And so then the question is, did the Latin translator add to the Greek and give his own canon list later, decades later? And secondly, manuscripts differ. Some have Revelation, some don't. Well, for the sake of argument, let's say that Revelation was not originally in the 250s list. If that were the case, though, that would still mean 26 out of the 27 are listed by origin, and you're backing up over a century prior to Athanasius. So now you're going back to 250. If you go beyond that, back into the second century, there seem to be two collections that are earlier and being formed before they merge into the New Testament as a whole. And those two collections are the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John coming together 
and being bound together, as it were, and then the Pauline epistles being put together. And so what you have is a list of New Testament canon lists going back to the Meritorian canon. It's still debated to this day. Is it 170s, 180s, or is it much later? But then it lists some of the other lists I have, including Origen and Athanasius and some others. You see what's on all nine lists. You see what are found in some of those lists, Philemon, 1 Peter, 2 John, Revelation, James, Hebrews, 3 John, and Jude, and 2 Peter. What they have in common is that most of them are very small epistles. Some of them are written to individuals. And then the two larger books are Hebrews and Revelation. Hebrews was heavily debated in the West and in especially uh, Italian context, North Africa. And Revelation was heavily debated in the East. And as we all know, Revelation is a difficult book to interpret. It has lots of vivid imagery and difficulties of interpretation, and so people struggle with that. And in the West, with Hebrews, it was because of some theological issues. But what is already set in stone by 2nd century, so decades and decades prior to origin, is a fourfold gospel and the Pauline epistles. So those are already set as collections. So here's kind of a graph to kind of put that into place there. You have the fourfold gospel, and then Acts is usually accepted along with that then. Uh, the 14 letters of Paul, we'd say perhaps 13, along with Hebrews, a very Pauline text, depending on your view of authorship. Actually, 1 John is usually put those in this list, and 1 Peter, and Revelation, apart from issues in the East and its uh, contestedness there. So if we go back to Irenaeus now, now we're going to 180. So origin, 250. Irenaeus is 180. He's living in modern-day France, back then called Gaul. And he says, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer than the number they are. For since there are four zones of the world, that'd be like north, south, east, and west, in which we live in four principal winds, and the cherubim too were four-faced. You think of Ezekiel in the book of Revelation, they have four different faces. Therefore, there are four Gospels. Now, interesting comment about this. Do you, you may say, well, that's, how is that an argument? I mean, I could have some other analogy and say, okay, there's five points of a star, so there's five Gospels, and so the Gospel of Thomas should be in there and use that kind of argument. Ironically, the nature of the argument actually adds to the power of the argument. By that I mean, it looks like Irenaeus already has an accepted fourfold Gospel, and now he's just finding analogies for it. He's not believing in a fourfold gospel because there are four points of the earth. He already believes in a fourfold gospel. And he's just kind of drawing random analogies to that from the external outside worlds. If that argument makes sense, it actually makes it a more powerful argument about the nature. It's just a given that the church has accepted a fourfold gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's the year 180. So let's go further backward, back into the early 2nd century. So now we're in the 110s, perhaps around the year 120. And Polycarp, who according to your tradition was a disciple of the Apostle John, he is in Smyrna in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's writing a letter to Philippi. So to put this into context, we have another letter written to the same church in Philippi that Paul wrote in the 60s. And we have another letter to that church about 60 years later, uh, written by an early Christian leader. And in that letter, Polycarp has 
what I would call like this katena, this combination of all these quotations, kind of woven together a tapestry of quotations. In a very short, his chapters in Greek are about that big, much smaller than uh, biblical chapters. But he has almost certainly quotations or citations from Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, and 1 John, and possibly various other ones, including 2 Corinthians, Thessalonian correspondence, Acts, and some others. But these would be almost certainly uh, citations or quotations. What's fascinating is that some of these, he's the first clear evidence of the use of these books, such as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, and 1 John. He's the very first author to use these books. Now, there are liberal critical scholars who think that the pastoral epistles are written around the year 150. So they're non-Pauline, they're not written by Paul, they're written in the middle of the 2nd century. This is why this evidence is so important. Because if Polycarp is quoting a document in 120, it has to be there. There has to be a document to quote. Um, It's not waiting till 150 for its existence, but it's already there, and he's quoting from that. So he has quotations from the pastoral epistles. That means 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Uh, For example, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's a famous verse, and he uh, quotes that verse among some other verses. So now we've kind of taken our trail, our journey backward, Um, all the way back from the 4th century through the 3rd century, late 2nd century, back into the early 2nd century. Well, what are some attributes in recognizing the New Testament canon? In other words, as people are making these lists and as pastoral figures are saying, yes, canon, that's scripture, that comes from God, do they ever give us a sense of what's making them think that way? And the answer is yes. We have some texts that they talk about these things. First of all, is it apostolic? By that, it doesn't have to be written by an apostle per se. It could be written by an apostle's companion, a co-worker of an apostle. So you think of Luke, he's not an apostle, but he hangs out with Paul. Um, And you think of Mark, who hangs out with Paul and with Peter. And you could add to that list James and Jude, for example. But is it apostolic? And really at the core of that, is actually Jesus Christ himself because he handpicked, as it were, the apostles, right? And like the book of Ephesians, Colossians talk about the apostles are the foundation of the church that God builds upon and uh, builds the church upon them, not because they're special people, but because they are witnesses to the risen Christ that, that have been chosen by Christ himself to have seen the risen Christ. And so, for example, in the Moratorian canon, They're arguing about the shepherd of Hermas. Is that in or is it out? And it says, but Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in our times in the city of Rome, while Bishop Pius, his brother, was occupying the chair of the church of the city of Rome, and therefore ought indeed to be read, but it cannot be read publicly to the people in church, either among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles, for it is after their time. In other words, this cannot be apostolic because we know when it was written. It was written more recently in our time, And that's far beyond the apostolic time. So historically, it cannot be written by an apostle or an apostle's companion. So it cannot be considered uh, canonical or scripture. The second issue is, is the text orthodox? I put that in quotes because in a sense, this is anachronistic. The word orthodox, um, it means literally right glory, giving right glory to God, right worship. 
But that's a third, three hundreds, a fourth century word. But the concept of a right teaching is already found um, earlier in Christianity. Of course, Paul himself says, whoever does not walk by this rule, um, he, he says, you know, don't work with them. Don't fellowship with them in Galatians chapter 6. And so they have this sense of a rule by which they're measuring things. And in the second century, something that we would not do today, but it makes sense in their context, if they have something like, uh, let's say, the Gospel of Peter that claims to be written by Peter, so in that sense it claims to be apostolic, uh, but is it? And so they have a sense, well, does it match up with Peter's teaching? How do you know that? You go to churches where Peter, we know where he was, compare the teaching that they received and compare it then with that book. And in fact, it does not match up. So here's a quotation of Serapion of Antioch, who at first was allowing the Gospel of Peter to be read in church, which is elevating it in its authority. But then as he looks at the Gospel of Peter, that book, he's like, no, I recognize that there are really odd teachings in there that don't match up. So as an example, in the Gospel of Peter, so it's purported to be written by Peter, but you know, not written by the Apostle Peter, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, he actually laughs at the Roman soldiers who are putting him on the cross and crucifying him. So in a sense, it's, it's, its mind is probably, well, this is like an amazing Jesus. He doesn't feel pain. So this is wonderful. He's just amazing Jesus. But actually, it's terrible teaching. Because if Jesus isn't suffering pain... It's going to mess up your Christology, that is, your belief in Jesus Christ, because he's not fully human. He does not succumb to human pain, which is the problem. There's a heresy called docetism, which is what I call Casper the Friendly Ghost Christology. He only appeared to be human, but he really wasn't human. And so as they're stabbing him and whipping him, it's like, ha, 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 he's laughing. I don't feel pain. But it's terrible Christology. But it also destroys what other doctrine. Not only Christology, soteriology. Why? Because he can't suffer in our place as our substitute if he's not really suffering. So it's not orthodox. It's not apostolic teaching. Also, is it consistent? So does it match up with uh, the received teaching that they had? And so here I won't take time to read these. This is a book called The Treatise on the Resurrection. It's been found among these types of documents, the types found at Nag Hammadi. Um, and in its teaching, there is no physical resurrection in the future. We're only awaiting a spiritual resurrection, but the body will not be resurrected by God. But that's not consistent with the Jewish and Christian belief of a bodily, physical resurrection. And so that would not be considered to be canonical. Is it reliable? Here we have a fascinating case study of Tertullian. His writing around the year 200, he's our first theologian that is giving us writings in the Latin language. So our first extant, extant just means available, Latin theologian, apart from Greek theologians. And in a book, he is discussing another book called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. So this is an example. There are Acts of John that we have copies of. There are Acts of Paul and Thecla, in this case, the Acts of Thomas. And as a side note, what we do as churches often is we're sending 18 and 19-year-olds off to state university situations, and they don't even know about these documents, and they go there, and they hear about them, and they feel lied to. They're like, my pastor never talked about these documents. My Sunday school teacher never talked about these documents, and I feel lied to. We'd probably be better off preparing them for a life and what they will face in secular contexts by acknowledging we are aware of these documents, and we have reasons for what we believe 
what we believe about these things. That they're not going to surprise them uh, the way that would often happen today in such contexts. Well, Tertullian is talking about this document, and he says, but if certain acts of Paul, which are falsely so named, in other words, not really by Paul, claim the example of Thecla for allowing women to teach and to baptize. So in this document, uh, women are teaching and then baptizing. Let men know that in age the presbyter compiled that document, the Acts of Paul, thinking to add of his own to Paul's reputation, was found out, and though he professed he had done it for love of Paul, was deposed from his position. What's he saying? Although this leader, in his own mind, thought he had a positive, good motivation for fabricating the Acts of Paul and making it sound like it really came from Paul, when it came out, and when the truth came out, he lost his pastoral position. They didn't look on that kindly. It's like, no, you don't do that. You don't write books in the name of Paul. And, of course, we know this is already happening. If you read Second Thessalonians, Paul says, there are some letters that have gone out as if I had written them. They've gone out with my name on it, but I didn't really write it. This was an issue already in the mid-first century already of such things happening. Also, their acceptance would be widespread and early. So you can't have like a church library in the 4th century, and, oh, I forgot to tell everyone in the world that we have this book hiding in the basement of the church library, and here it is, but sorry about that, we didn't share it with all of you, and now we want it to be in the Bible. That, that would not fit the rubric. That would not be accepted widespread and early. So we have some examples from this. Um, Justin Martyr, who is a, a writer in 150 or so, and on the day called Sunday, that's a whole change from Sabbath to Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Very interesting parallel. The memoirs of the apostles are the gospels, and they're equal in authority as the prophets of the Old Testament. For the apostles and the memoirs composed by them, which are called gospels, he directly calls them now the gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoyed upon them, that Jesus took bread and we had given thanks, said, and the rest, this is my body, which is then remembrance of me, and we all hear that, of course, at the Lord's table. But he's talking about reading these in public. Now, once again, if you're illiterate, you don't read the Bible at home. The only time you hear scripture is in a church service being read to you because you don't have the wealth to have a personal copy. And if you can't read, you can't read it at home. And so you have it read in church. And it's the power of scripture reading in the church. And then is it edifying, which simply means does it build up? So Polycarp in writing on Paul's book of the Philippians, so Polycarp's writing to the same church half a century later, he says, For neither am I, nor is any other like me, able to follow the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul, who when he was among you in the presence of the men of that time, taught accurately and steadfastly the word of truth, and also when he was absent, wrote letters to you from the study of which you'll be able to build yourselves up into the faith given to you. So the Paul's epistle is able to build you up, it edifies you. Underneath all this, though, this, this has been history so far. Underneath it, though, are theological underpinnings, and we would be remiss not to mention these. There is this triad of prophets foretelling the coming of the Lord, so looking forward, anticipating Jesus as the Messiah. He comes, and then apostles whom he chose looking backward at him. So Jesus is the focus. He's the fulcrum. Prophets look forward to him. Apostles look back to him. So Polycarp talks about this. The apostles who preach the gospel to us and the prophets who proclaim beforehand the coming of the Lord. Even Second Peter, that you may be mindful of the things which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. 
And in Romans, already very inchoate here, but you have the idea of the gospel of God promised beforehand by his prophets, and Paul has been called as an apostle. And of course, I already mentioned 1 Thessalonians 2. It is the word of God that is the message that Paul's preaching. Uh, composition and recognition is really important to keep these separate and distinct. The Bible is Bible, it's scripture, it's God's word at the point of writing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Canonicity refers to recognition. It's not making it scripture. The church does not make it scripture. Uh, bishops don't make it scripture. Pastors don't make it scripture. Authors don't make it scripture. It's God who makes it scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that led to a problem in the Reformation because when the Reformers appear in the 1500s, the Catholic Church is saying, but you keep on talking about Sola Scriptura, Sola Scriptura, which means what? Scripture alone, but they said, but how do you know you have the right books? It's because the church gave you the right books, so you're implicitly trusting the church, although you say you're only trusting Scripture. And so the way the Reformers responded is that the Holy Spirit uh, works within us, within our hearts and minds, so that we have the testimony of the Spirit, the internum testimonium, so that we recognize that it is, in fact, scripture. Now, this is a second-generation Reformation document. Westminster Confession talks about this and how the inward work of the Holy Spirit bears witness by and with the word in our hearts. And I think that's all true, but I would hasten to add that it's not just us individually or subjectively. Of course, what did Mormons do? What do the Latter-day Saints do with the Book of Mormon? They give you a copy and they say what? Read this. And see if you'll feel the burning in your heart, the burning in your bosom. And you, you'll feel it and you know it's God's word, right? So what they're, they're doing is hand you a copy. You know, Do I feel it? Do I feel it? I think I feel it. It must be God's word. It's based upon experientialism, right? So you understand why the reformers are saying what they're saying. But remember the Holy Spirit's not only at work today, individuals, but he's also at work in the early church. Now all the historical stuff that we saw, first, second, third century of people recognizing scripture as scripture. In the end of the day, it's self-authenticating, meaning it serves to prove itself to be real, true, or genuine, not requiring extrinsic proof of one's authority. The Bible shows itself to be God's word. It manifests itself to be what it is. It already is in its character God's word because of inspiration by the Holy Spirit, but it shows itself to be such in the hearts and lives of individuals and through edifying. So those are two books I'd recommend if you're really interested in that kind of theology of the canon. Michael Kruger, a canon revisited, the question of the canon, and uh, he has a website called Canon Fodder. And then uh, two more, pneumatology. So the Holy Spirit is at work behind all this. He's the one who inspires scripture who guides the early church to recognize it as scripture and does work within us so that we also are edified as we read scripture today with the internal testimony of the spirit. But it's the Holy Spirit at work through all of it. So it's based upon divine authority, not based upon human authority, not even based upon the church's authority, but based upon God's authority. And then God's sovereignty. He made sure that we have the right books through his work in human history and through his work in the early church and throughout church history. So those are just some thoughts to think about. And one of the most common questions asked today in secular context, how do you know you have the right books? 
And perhaps you've never heard that before. You didn't realize there are all these other documents out there that have names like the Gospel of Thomas or the Acts of John or the Apocalypse of Paul. Uh, but to be aware of those and to be familiar with this material. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word through your spirit and that we can learn uh, from your word through the illumination of the spirit. And Father, we pray uh, that as we interact with your word this week, even privately, personally at home, or in corporate settings at church, that we would be once again amazed by uh, the teachings of your word and by its work in our lives. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.